Section six of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Elwood. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two, by James Boswell. Section six. 1770, I at 61. In 1770, he published a political pamphlet entitled The False Alarm, intended to justify the conduct of ministry and their majority in the House of Commons, for having virtually assumed it as an axiom, that the expulsion of a member of Parliament was equivalent to exclusion, and thus having declared Colonel Lutterell to be duly elected for the county of Middlesex, notwithstanding Mr. Wilkes had a great majority of votes. This being justly considered as a gross violation of the right of election, an alarm for the Constitution extended itself all over the kingdom. To prove this alarm to be false was the purpose of Johnson's pamphlet, but even his vast powers were inadequate to cope with the constitutional truth and reason, and his argument failed of effect and the House of Commons have since expunged the offensive resolution from their journals. That the House of Commons might have expelled Mr. Wilkes repeatedly, and as often as he should be re-chosen, was not denied, but incapacitation cannot be but by an act of the whole legislature. It was wonderful to see how a prejudice in favor of government in general, and an aversion to popular clamor, could blind and contract such an understanding as Johnson's. In this particular case, yet the wit, the sarcasm, the eloquent vivacity which this pamphlet displayed, made it be read with great avidity at the time, and it will ever be read with pleasure, for the sake of its composition. That it endeavored to infuse a narcotic indifference, as to public concerns, into the minds of the people, and that it broke out sometimes into an extreme coarseness of contemptuous abuse, is but too evident. It must not, however, be omitted that when the storm of his violence subsides, he takes a fair opportunity to pay a grateful compliment to the king, who had rewarded his merit. These low-born rulers have endeavored, surely without effect, to alienate the affections of the people from the only king who, for almost a century, has much appeared to desire, or much endeavored to deserve them. And every honest man must lament that the faction has been regarded with frigid neutrality by the Tories, who, being long accustomed to signalize their principles by opposition to the court, do not yet consider that they have at last a king who knows not the name of party, and who wishes to be the common father of all his people. To this pamphlet, which was at once discovered to be Johnson's, several answers came out, in which care was taken to remind the public of his former attacks upon government, and of his now being a prisoner, without allowing for the honorable terms upon which Johnson's pension was granted and accepted or the change of system which the british court had undergone upon the accession of his present majesty he was however soothed in the highest strain of pagniric in a poem called the remonstrance by the rev mr stockdale to whom he was upon many occasions a kind protector 
the following admirable minute made by him describes so well his own state and that of numbers to whom self-examination is habitual that i cannot omit it june first seventeen seventy every man naturally persuades himself that he can keep his resolutions nor is he convinced of his imbecility but by length of time and frequency of experiment this opinion of our own constancy is so prevalent that we always despise him who suffers his general and settled purpose to be overpowered by an occasional desire they therefore whom frequent failures have made desperate cease to form resolutions and they who are become cunning do not tell them those who do not make them are very few but of their effect little is perceived for scarcely any man persists in a course of life planned by choice but as he is restrained from deviation by some external power he who may live as he will seldom lives long in the observation of his own rules of this year i have obtained the following letters to the reverend dr farmer cambridge sir as no man ought to keep wholly to himself any possession that may be useful to the public i hope you will not think me unreasonably intrusive if i have recourse to you for such information as you are more able to give me than any other man in support of an opinion which you have already placed above the need of any more support mr stevens a very ingenious gentleman lately of king's college has collected an account of all the translations which shakespeare might have seen and used he wishes his catalogue to be perfect and therefore entreats that you will favour him by the insertion of such additions as the accuracy of your inquiries has enabled you to make to this respect i take the liberty of adding my own solicitation we have no immediate use for this catalogue and therefore do not desire that it should interrupt or hinder your more important employments but it will be kind to let us know that you receive it i am sir etc sam johnson johnson's court fleet street march twenty first seventeen seventy to the reverend mr thomas wharton dear sir the readiness with which you were pleased to promise me some notes on shakespeare was a new instance of your friendship i shall not hurry you but am desired by mr stevens who helps me in this edition to let you know that we shall print the tragedies first and shall therefore want first the notes which belong to them we think not to incommode the readers with the supplement and therefore what we cannot put into its proper place will do us no good we shall not begin to print before the end of six weeks perhaps not so soon i am etc sam johnson london june twenty third seventeen seventy to the reverend dr joseph wharton dear sir i am revising my edition of shakespeare and remember that i formally misrepresented your opinion of lear be pleased to write the paragraph as you would have it and send it if you have any remarks of your own upon that or any other play i shall gladly receive them make my compliments to mrs wharton i sometimes think of wandering for a few days to winchester but am apt to delay i am sir your most humble servant sam johnson september twenty seventh seventeen seventy to mr francis barber at mrs clapp's bishop stratford hertfordshire dear francis 
I am at last sat down to write you, and should very much blame myself for having neglected you so long, if I did not impute that and many other failings to want of health. I hope not to be so long silent again. I am very well satisfied with your progress, if you can readily perform the exercises which you are set, and I hope Mr. Ellis does not suffer you to impose on him, or on yourself. Make my compliments to Mr. Ellis, and to Mrs. Clapp, and Mr. Smith. Let me know what English books you read for your entertainment. You can never be wise unless you love reading. Do not imagine that I shall forget or forsake you. For if, when I examine you, I find that you have not lost your time, you shall want no encouragement from yours affectionately, Sam Johnson. London, September 25th, 1770. To the same. Dear Francis, I hope you mind your business. I design you shall stay with Mrs. Clapp these holidays. If you are invited out, you may go, if Mr. Ellis gives leave. I have ordered you some clothes, which you will receive, I believe, next week. My compliments to Mrs. Clapp, and to Mr. Ellis, and Mr. Smith, etc. I am your affectionate Sam Johnson. December 7th, 1770 During this year there was a total cessation of all correspondence between Dr. Johnson and me, without any coldness on either side but merely from procrastination continued from day to day and as i was not in london i had no opportunity of enjoying his company and recording his conversation to supply this blank i shall present my readers with some collectiana obligingly furnished to me by the rev dr maxwell of falkland in ireland some time assistant preacher at the temple and for many years a social friend of johnson who spoke of him with a very kind regard my acquaintance with that great and venerable character commenced in the year 1754. I was introduced to him by Mr. Grierson, His Majesty's printer at Dublin, a gentleman of uncommon learning and great wit and vivacity. Mr. Grierson died in Germany at the age of 27. Dr. Johnson highly respected his abilities and often observed that he possessed more extensive knowledge than any man of his years he had ever known. His industry was equal to his talents, and he particularly excelled in every species of philological learning, and was, perhaps, the best critic of the age he lived in. I must always remember with gratitude my obligation to Mr. Grierson for the honor and happiness of Dr. Johnson's acquaintance and friendship, which continued uninterrupted and undiminished to his death, a connection that was at once the pride and happiness of my life. What a pity it is that so much wit and good sense as he continually exhibited in conversation should perish unrecorded. Few persons quitted his company without perceiving themselves wiser and better than they were before. On serious subjects he flashed the most interesting conviction upon his auditors, and upon lighter topics you might have supposed Albano Musas de Monde Locutus. Though I can hope to add but little to the celebrity of so exalted a character by any communications I can furnish, yet out of pure respect to his memory I will venture to transmit to you some anecdotes concerning him, which fell under my own observation. The very minute of such a character must be interesting, and may be compared to the filings of diamonds. 
In politics he was deemed a Troy, but certainly was not so in the obnoxious or party sense of the term. For while he asserted the legal and salutary prerogatives of the crown, he no less respected the constitutional liberties of the people. Whiggism, at the time of the revolution, he said, was accompanied with certain principles, but latterly as a mere party distinction under Walpole, and the Pelhams was no better than the politics of stock-jobbers and the religion of infidels. He detested the idea of governing by parliamentary corruption, and asserted most strenuously that a prince steadily and conspicuously pursuing the interests of his people could not fail of parliamentary concurrence. A prince of ability, he contended, might and should be the directing soul and spirit of his own administration. In short, his own minister, and not the mere head of a party, and then, and not till then, would the royal dignity be sincerely respected. Johnson seemed to think that a certain degree of crown influence over the Houses of Parliament, not meaning a corrupt and shameful dependence, was very salutary, nay, even necessary, in our mixed government. For, said he, if the members were under no crown influence, and disqualified from re receiving any gratification from court, and resembled, as they possibly might, Pym and Hasselrig, and other stubborn and sturdy members of the long Parliament, the wheels of government would be totally obstructed. Such men would oppose, merely to show their own power, from envy, jealousy, and perversity of disposition, and not gaining themselves, would hate and oppose all who did, not loving the person of the prince, and conceiving they owed him little gratitude from the mere spirit of insolence and contradiction. They would oppose and thwart him upon all occasions. The inseparable imperfection annexed to all human governments consisted, he said, in not being able to create a sufficient fund of virtue and principle to carry the laws into due and effectual execution. Wisdom might plan, but virtue alone could execute. And where could sufficient virtue be found? A variety of delegated and often discretionary powers must be entrusted somewhere, which, if not governed by integrity and conscience, would necessarily be abused, till at last the constable would sell his for a shilling. This excellent person was sometimes charged with abetting slavish and arbitrary principles of government. Nothing, in my opinion, could be a grosser calumny and misrepresentation. For how can it be rationally supposed that he should adopt such pernicious and absurd opinions, who supported his philosophical character with so much dignity, was extremely jealous of his personal liberty and independence, and could not brook the smallest appearance of neglect or insult? even from the highest personages. But let us view him in some instances of more familiar life. His general mode of life during my acquaintance seemed to be pretty uniform. About twelve o'clock I commonly visited him, and frequently found him in bed, or declaiming over his tea, which he drank very plentifully. He generally had a levy of morning visitors, chiefly men of letters, Hawksworth, Goldsmith, Murphy, Langton, Stevens, Beauclerk, etc., etc., and sometimes learned ladies. Particularly, I remember a French lady of wit and fashion doing him the honor of a visit. 
he seemed to me to be considered as a kind of public oracle whom everybody thought they had a right to visit and consult and doubtless they were well rewarded i never could discover how he found time for his compositions he declaimed all the morning then went to a dinner at a tavern where he commonly stayed late and then drank his tea at some friend's house over which he loitered a great while but seldom took supper i fancy he must have read and wrote chiefly in the night for i can scarcely recollect that he ever refused going with me to a tavern and he often went to renaley which he deemed a place of innocent recreation he frequently gave all the silver in his pocket to the poor who watched him between his house and the tavern where he dined he walked the streets at all hours and said he was never robbed for the rogues knew he had little money nor had the appearance of having much though the most accessible and communicative man alive yet when he suspected he was invited to be exhibited he constantly spurned the invitation two young women from stratfordshire visited him when i was present to consult him on the subject of methodism to which they were inclined come said he you pretty fools dine with maxwell and me at the mitre and we will talk over that subject which they did and after dinner he took one of them upon his knee and fondled her for half an hour together upon a visit to me at a country lodging near twickenham he asked what sort of society i had there i told him but indifferent as they chiefly consisted of opulent traders retired from business he said he never much liked that class of people for sir said he they have lost the civility of tradesmen without acquiring the manners of gentlemen johnson was much attached to london he observed that a man stored his mind better there than anywhere else and that in remote situations a man's body might be feasted but his mind was starved and his faculties apt to degenerate from want of exercise and competition no place he said cured a man's vanity or arrogance so well as london for as no man was either great or good per se but as compared with others not so good or great he was sure to find in the metropolis many his equals and some his superiors he observed that a man in london was in less danger of falling in love indiscreetly than anywhere else for there the difficulty of deciding between the conflicting pretensions of a vast variety of objects kept him safe he told me that he had frequently been offered country preferment if he would consent to take orders but he could not leave the improved society of the capital or consent to exchange the exhilarating joys and splendid decorations of public life for the obscurity insipidity and uniformity of remote situations speaking of mr hart canon of windsor and writer of the history of gustavus adolphus he much condemned him as a scholar and a man of the most companionable talents he had ever known he said the defects in his history proceeded not from imbecility but from foppery he loved he said the old black leather books they were rich in matter though their style was inelegant wonderfully so consisting how conversant the writers were with the best models of antiquity burton's anatomy of melancholy he said was the only book that ever took him out of bed two hours sooner than he wished to rise he frequently exhorted me to set about writing a history of ireland 
and archly remarked there had been some good Irish writers, and that one Irishman might at least aspire to be equal to another. He had great compassion for the miseries and distresses of the Irish nation, particularly the Papists, and severely reprobated the barbarous, debilitating policy of the British government, which, he said, was the most detestable mode of persecution. To a gentleman, who hinted such policy might be necessary to support the authority of the English government, he replied by saying, Let the authority of the English government perish rather than be maintained by iniquity. Better would it be to restrain the turbulence of the natives by the authority of the sword, and to make them amenable to the law and justice by an effectual and vigorous police, than to grind them to powder by all manner of disabilities and incapacities. Better, said he, to hang or drown people at once, than by unrelenting persecution to beggar and starve them. The moderation and humanity of the present times have, in some measure, justified the wisdom of his observations. Dr. Johnson was often accused of prejudices, nay, antipathy, with regard to the natives of Scotland. Surely so illiberal a prejudice never entered his mind, and it is well known that many natives of that respectable country possessed a large share in his esteem, nor were any of them ever excluded from his good offices, as far as opportunity permitted. True it is, he considered the Scotch, nationally, as a crafty, designing people, eagerly attentive to their own interest, and too apt to overlook the claims and pretensions of other people while they confine their benevolence in a manner exclusively to those of their own country they expect to share in the good offices of other people now said johnson this principle is either right or wrong if right we should do well to imitate such conduct if wrong we cannot too much detest it being solicited to compose a funeral sermon for the daughter of a tradesman he naturally inquired into the character of the deceased and, being told she was remarkable for her humility and condescension to inferiors, he observed that those were very laudable qualities, but it might not be so easy to discover who the lady's inferiors were. Of a certain prayer, he remarked, that his conversation usually threatened and announced more than it performed, that he fed you with a continual renovation of hope to end in a constant succession of disappointment. When exasperated by contradiction, he was apt to treat his opponents with too much acronymony, as, Sir, you don't see your way through that question. Sir, you talk the language of ignorance. On my observing to him that a certain gentleman had remained silent the whole evening in the midst of a very brilliant and learned society, Sir, said he, the conversation overflowed and drowned him. His philosophy, though austere and solemn, was by no means morose and cynical, and never blunted the laudable sensibilities of his character, or exempted him from the influence of the tender passions. Want of tenderness, he always alleged, was want of parts, and was no less a proof of stupidity than depravity. Speaking of Mr. Hanway, who published An Eight Days' Journey from London to Portsmouth, Jonas, said he, acquired some reputation by traveling abroad, but lost it all by traveling at home. Of the passion of love, he remarked, 
that its violence and ill effects were much exaggerated, for who knows any real sufferings on that head more than from the exorbitancy of any other passion. He much commended Law's serious call, which, he said, was the finest piece of horatory theology in any language. Law, said he, fell laterally into the reveries of Jacob Bayman, whom Law alleged to have been somewhat in the same state with St. Paul, and to have seen unutterable things. He would have resembled St. Paul still more by not attempting to utter them. He observed that the established clergy in general did not preach plain enough, and that polished periods and glittering sentences flew over their heads of the common people, without any impression upon their hearts. Something might be necessary, he observed, to excite the affections of the common people, who were sunk in languor and lethargy, and therefore he supposed that the new commandments of Methodism might probably produce so desirable an effect. The mind, like the body, he observed, delighted in change and novelty, and even in religion itself, courted new appearance and modifications. Whatever might be thought of some Methodist teachers, he said, he could scarcely doubt the sincerity of that man, who travelled nine hundred miles in a month, and preached twelve times a week, for no adequate reward, merely temporal, could be given for such an indefatigable labour. Of Dr. Priestley's theological works, he remarked that they tended to unsettle everything, and yet settled nothing. He was much affected by the death of his mother, and wrote to me to come and assist him to compose his mind, which indeed I found extremely agitated. He lamented that all serious and religious conversation was banished from the society of men, and yet great advantages might be derived from it. All acknowledged, he said, what hardly anybody practised, the obligation we were under of making the concerns of eternity the governing principles of our lives. Every man, he observed, at last wishes for retreat. He sees his expectations frustrated in the world, and begins to wean himself from it, and to prepare for everlasting separation. He observed that the influence of London now extended everywhere, and that from all manner of communication being opened, there shortly would be no remains of the ancient simplicity, or places of cheap retreat to be found. He was no admirer of blank verse, and said it always failed, unless sustained by the dignity of the subject. In blank verse, he said, the language suffered more distortion to keep it out of prose than any inconvenience or limitation to be apprehended from the shackles and circumspection of rhyme. He reproved me once for saying grace without mention of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and hoped in future I would be more mindful of the apostical injunction. He refused to go out of a room before me at Mr. Langton's house, saying he hoped he knew his rank better than to presume to take place of a doctor of divinity. I mention such little anecdotes merely to show the peculiar turn and habit of his mind. He used frequently to observe that there was more to be endured than enjoyed in the general condition of human life, and frequently quoted those lines of Dryden, Strange cozenage, none would live past years again, yet all hope pleasure from what still remain. For his part, he said, he never passed that week in his life which he would wish to repeat 
or an angel to make the proposal to him. He was of opinion that the English nation cultivated both their soil and their reason better than any other people, but admitted that the French, though not the highest, perhaps, in any department of literature, yet in every department were very high. Intellectual preeminence, he observed, was the highest superiority, and that every nation derived their highest reputation from the splendor and dignity of their writers. Voltaire, he said, was a good narrator, and that his principal merit consisted in a happy selection and arrangement of circumstances. Speaking of the French novels, compared with Richardson's, he said, they might be pretty baubles, but a wren was not an eagle. In a Latin conversation with the Pere Boscovich at the house of Mrs. Cholmondeleli, I heard him maintain the superiority of Sir Isaac Newton over all foreign philosophers, with a dignity and eloquence that surprised the learned foreigner, it being observed to him that a rage for everything English prevailed much in France after Lord Catham's glorious war. He said, he did not wonder at it, for that we had drubbed those fellows into a proper reverence for us, and that their national petulance required periodical chastisement. Lord Lyelton's dialogues he deemed a nagratory performance. That man, said he, sat down to write a book, to tell the world what the world had all his life been telling him. Somebody observing that the Scottish Highlanders in the year 1745 had made surprising efforts, considering their numerous wants and disadvantages. Yes, sir, said he, their wants were numerous, but you have not mentioned the greatest of them all, the want of law. Speaking of the inward light, to which some Methodists pretended, he said it was a principle utterly incompatible with the social or civil security. If a man, said he, pretends to a principle of action of which I can know nothing, nay, not so much as that he has it, but only that he pretends to it, how can I tell what that person may be prompted to do? When a person professes to be governed by a written ascertained law, I can then know where to find him. The poem of Fingal, he said, was a mere unconnected rhapsody, a tiresome repetition of the same images. In vain shall we look for the Lucas Ordo, where there is neither end nor object, design or moral, nec certa recute imagio. Being asked by a young nobleman what was become of the gallantry and military spirit of the old English nobility, he replied, Why, my lord, I'll tell you what's become of it. It has gone into the city to look for a fortune. Speaking of a dull, tiresome fellow, whom he chanced to meet, he said, That fellow seems to me to possess but one idea, and that is a wrong one. Much inquiry having been made concerning a gentleman who had quitted a company where Johnson was, and no information being obtained, at last Johnson observed that he did not care to speak ill of any man behind his back, but he believed that the gentleman was an attorney. He spoke with much contempt of the notice taken of Woodhouse, the poetical shoemaker. He said it was all vanity and childishness, and that such objects were, to those who patronized them, mere mirrors of their own superiority. 
They had better, said he, furnish the man with good implements for his trade than raise subscriptions for his poems. He may make an excellent shoemaker, but can never make a good poet. A schoolboy's exercise may be a pretty thing for a schoolboy, but it is no treat for a man. Speaking of Boetus, who was the favorite writer of the Middle Ages, he said, It was very surprising that upon such a subject, and in such a situation, he should be magius philosophus quam Christanius. Speaking of Arthur Murphy, whom he very much loved, I don't know, said he, that Arthur can be classed with the very first dramatic writers. Yet at present I doubt much whether we have anything superior to Arthur. Speaking of the national debt, he said, It was an idle dream to suppose that the country could sink under it. Let the public creditors be ever so clamorous. The interest of millions must ever prevail over that of thousands. Of Dr. Connecticut's collations, he observed, that though the text should not be much mended thereby, yet it was no small advantage to know that we had as good a text as the most consummate industry and diligence could procure. Johnson observed that so many objections might be made to everything, that nothing could overcome them but the necessity of doing something. No man would be of any profession as simply opposed to not being of it, but everyone must do something. He remarked that a London parish was a very comfortless thing, for the clergyman seldom knew the face of one out of ten of his parishioners. Of the late Mr. Mallet, he spoke with no great respect, said he was ready for any dirty job, that he had wrote against Bing at the instigation of the ministry, and was equally ready to write for him, provided he found his account in it. A gentleman, who had been very unhappy in marriage, married immediately after his wife died. Johnson said, It was the triumph of hope over experience. He observed that a man of sense and education should meet a suitable companion in a wife. It was a miserable thing when the conversation could only be such as whether the mutton should be boiled or roasted, and probably a dispute about that. He did not approve of late marriages, observing that more was lost in point of time than compensated for by any possible advantages. Even ill-assorted marriages were preferable to cheerless celibacy. Of old Sheridan he remarked that he neither wanted parts nor literature, but that his vanity and quixotism obscured his merits. He said, Foppery was never cured. It was the bad stamina of the mind, which, like those of the body, were never rectified, once a coxcomb, and always a coxcomb. Being told that Gilbert Cooper called him the Caliban of literature, well, said he, I must dub him the Poncinlo. Speaking of the old Earl of Cork and Ory, he said, that man spent his life in catching at an object, which he had not power to grasp. To find a substitution for violated morality, he said, was the leading feature in all perversions of religion. He often used to quote with great pathos those fine lines of Virgil, Optima quaequis dies miseris mortabilis avi, prima fugit subient morbi tristice senectus, et labor et dure rapit inclementia mortis. Speaking of Homer, whom he venerated as the prince of poets, 
Johnson remarked that the advice given to Diomed by his father when he sent him to the Trojan War was the noblest exhortation that could be instanced in any heathen writer, and comprised in a single line, which, if I recollect well, is translated by Dr. Clark thus, Semper apatere prastemestima et omnibus alis anticlare. He observed, it was a more mortifying reflection for any man to consider what he had done compared with what he might have done. He said few people had intellectual resources sufficient to forego the pleasures of wine. They could not otherwise contrive how to fill the interval between dinner and supper. He went with me one Sunday to hear my old master, Gregory Sharp, preach at the temple. In the prefatory prayer, Sharp ranted about liberty as a blessing most fervently to be implored, and its continuance prayed for. Johnson observed that our liberty was in no sort of danger. He would have done much better to pray against our licentiousness. One evening at Mrs. Montague's, where a splendid company was assembled, consisting of the most eminent literary characters, I thought he seemed highly pleased with the respect and attention that were shown to him, and asked him on our return home if he was not highly gratified by his visit. No, sir, said he, not highly gratified, yet I do not recollect to have passed many evenings with fewer objections. Though of no high extraction himself, he had much respect for birth and family, especially among ladies. He said, Advantageousness, accomplishments may be possessed by all ranks, but one may easily distinguish the born gentlewoman. He said, The poor in England were better provided for than in any other country of the same extent. He did not mean little cantons, or pretty republics, where a great proportion of the people, said he, are suffered to languish in helpless misery, that country must be ill-policed and wretchedly governed. A decent provision for the poor is the true test of civilization. Gentlemen of education, he observed, were pretty much the same in all countries. The condition of the lower orders, the poor especially, was the true mark of national discrimination. When the Corn Laws were in agitation in Ireland, by which that country has been enabled not only to feed itself, but to export corn to a large amount, Sir Thomas Robinson observed that those laws might be prejudicial to the corn trade of England. Sir Thomas, said he, you talk the language of a savage. What, sir, would you prevent any people from feeding themselves, if by any honest means then they can do it? It being mentioned that the Garrick assisted Dr. Brown, the author of the estimate, in some dramatic composition, No, sir, said Johnson, he would no more suffer Garrick to write a line in his play than he would suffer him to mount his pulpit. Speaking of Burke, he said, It was commonly observed he spoke too often in Parliament, but nobody could say he did not speak well, though too frequently and too familiarly. Speaking of economy, he remarked, it was hardly worth while to save anxiously twenty pounds a year. If a man could save to that agree, so as to enable him to assume a different rank in society, then indeed it might answer some purpose. He observed a principal source of erroneous judgment was, viewing things partially and only on one side, as for instance fortune-hunters. When they contemplated the fortunes singly and separately, it was a dazzling and tempting object. 
but when they came to possess the wives and their fortunes together, they began to suspect that they had not made quite so good a bargain. Speaking of the late Duke of Northumberland, living very magnificently when Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, somebody remarked it would be difficult to find a suitable successor to him. Then, exclaimed Johnson, he is only fit to succeed himself. He advised me, if possible, to have a good orchard. He knew, he said, a clergyman of small income, who brought up a family very reputably which he chiefly fed with apple dumplings. He said he had known several good scholars among the Irish gentlemen, but scarcely any of them correct in quantity. He extended the same observation to Scotland. Speaking of a certain prelate, who exerted himself very laudably in building churches and parsonage houses, however, said he, I do not find that he is esteemed a man of much professional learning, or liberal patron of it. Yet it is well, where a man possesses any strong positive excellence, few have all kinds of merit belonging to their character. We must not examine matters too deeply. No, sir, a fallible being will fail somewhere. Talking of the Irish clergy, he said, Swift was a man of great parts, and the instrument of much good to his country. Berkeley was a profound scholar, as well as a man of fine imagination. But Usher, he said, was the great luminary of the Irish church, and a greater, he added, no church could boast of, at least in modern times. We dined tete-a-tete -tete at the Mitre, as I was preparing to return to Ireland, after an absence of many years. I regarded much leaving London, where I had formed many agreeable connections. Sir, said he, I don't wonder at it. No man, fond of letters, leaves London without regret. But remember, sir, you have seen and enjoyed a great deal. You have seen life in its highest decorations, and the world has nothing new to exhibit. No man is so well qualified to leave public life as he who has long tired and known it well. We are always hankering after untried situations, and imagining greater felicity from them than they can afford. No, sir, knowledge and virtue may be acquired in all countries, and your local consequence will make you some amends for the intellectual gratifications you relinquish. Then he quoted the following lines with great pathos. He who has early known the pomps of state, for things unknown tis ignorance to condemn, and after having viewed the gaudy bait, can boldly say the trifle I condemn, with such a one contented I could live, contented could I die. He then took a most affecting leave of me, said he knew it was a point of duty that called me away. We shall all be sorry to lose you, said he. Laudo tamen. End of section 6